This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network, we are the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together we make the podcast of champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. We're doing Pacific Northwest this week, David, uh, talking about Washington, Washington State, Oregon, and Oregon State. We're both on tight schedules. you got UCLA basketball. I had a whole bunch of media availability for new assistant coaches. So we'll just jump right into things. Let's let people know if you have a question for us, pac12podcast at gmail.com or call or text us at 424- 532-0678. You can also tweet us at Pac-12 Podcast. The website is Pac-12Podcast.com, and you can go over to reddit.com slash r slash podcast of champions and find us there. Chat with other POC listeners. And if you have the Apple Podcasting app or Stitcher, you please leave us a five-star rating. We love that. And, you know, something fun on the Apple Podcasting app as a review. Take take a few shots at us that we don't know what we're talking about. That's why we have experts on, though, so maybe we will know what we're talking about this week. Well, we won't. But we'll ask them, and then they'll convey it to the listeners, and we probably will be too stupid to understand what they're saying. Very, very true. Uh, That's a very good point, David. Uh, Well, there is some kind of uh, breaking news before we jump into all of our guests. Um, that Remember we talked about the other shoe dropping at ASU? It seems to be dropping. Well, half the shoe. Half the shoe. But where's the full shoe? Why are you not firing Herm Edwards right now? Yeah, half the staff is gone, right? So it's uh Prentice Gill and Chris Hawkins were fired for cause. Uh Adam Brenneman, uh he resigned. Uh Antonio Pierce, uh he just resigned. And what? There was one more, I think. So we had there was five total coaches. I I might be missing one there. Uh who cares? Uh it's not Herm Edwards. <laughs> and he needs to go. Uh that this is untenable. You cannot you cannot continue your program with Herm Edwards at the helm. Yeah, I, it doesn't seem like this is going to be able to last uh, a whole lot longer. So I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen here. Um, but and, and the latest one is Antonio Pierce did resign. So um, not a good recruiting class. And I don't know. Just it's not not looking up. At hang on. Not a good recruiting class really does undersell what's going on at ASU. I think they have the 12th worst class in the conference this year. Oh. Oh well, is that how many uh, teams were in the conference? Like, well, at last count, and here I just want to make sure I got my facts right here. At last count, yes, there are only twelve uh, teams in the league, so they are twelve oh. of twelve in the Yikes. conference in recruiting this year. Hmm. That's uh, that's 
That's not good. I guess there's room to improve for next year. Yeah. That. Uh, this is, it's, it's kind of a mess. Um, all right. Well, I guess we're going to have to jump into all of our interviews. I think we're going to start. Let's see. The order we're going to go, we'll go, uh, Oregon State. We're going to do Washington. We're going to do Washington State. And then, uh, you actually talked to our buddy Matt Preem, um, earlier. And we'll, I guess we can play that one at the end, uh, talking about Oregon. Does that sound good to you? That sounds great. And I address, uh, the pronunciation of Preem at that juncture. So stay tuned for that breaking news. All right. First up, we're talking to Angie Machado about Oregon State Beavers. Thanks for coming on, Angie. Uh, Jonathan Smith, the only coach in the Pacific Northwest that still has a job. It's fifth season there. Uh, they did make a change at defensive coordinator, but man, it's a little bit different. The, the, uh, the look of the coaching tree up there is a little different now than it was last year. It is. It is. And, uh, Gosh, yeah, you're right. All all the other North or Pac-12 Northwest schools made changes, but yeah, Jonathan Smith is is pretty much entrenched, I think. And uh, the defensive coordinator change needed to happen, and now we see if if this move pays dividends. So uh, this past year, um, obviously a step in the right direction, a continued step in the right direction for Jonathan Smith and the program. Uh, but I we were getting emails um, midway through the year and then towards the end of the year from. I wouldn't describe them as disgruntled Oregon State fans. I wouldn't say that at all, but maybe some feeling like there were some missed opportunities um, this season to actually have a kind of a, a bigger, more, I guess, conference significant season. Uh, what's your uh, gauge of the temperature of the fan base right now? Yeah, I think it, I think it depends. I mean, if, if you're talking to the diehard Beaver Blitz members, the you know, the guys that are listening to the podcast of champions and, and those guys that are following it every single day and, um, yeah, it was disappointing. I think if you talk to more of a casual fan, a lot of them were just happy that they made a bowl game again. But um, there were, I think there were a lot of missed opportunities this year. Um, when you look look back at the schedule, especially when you look at that back-to-back losses against Colorado and Cal. Yeah. Cal, Cal technically just kicked their rear. I mean, so that was a, a big loss. Um, but then Colorado, they were in that game and, and had chances and, and just kind of didn't play to their potential. So it, it's really interesting when you when you look at the team and and some of the the losses they did have. You know they they beat USC, they beat Utah, they beat Arizona State, and then they had head scratching losses to you know Cal and Colorado. So um, the uh, change at defensive coordinator, I mean, it needed to happen. Tim Tibisar is out, and uh, I guess promoting Trent Bray, who was the uh, inside linebackers coach, is he still going to run like a, I believe it was a three four scheme that. Tibisar run and is it, you think it's going to be much different? Yeah, I, I look for it to be a lot different. You know, Trent has already said that is, he's going to mix things up a lot. Um, new looks, we will see some four three, we'll see some three three four, we'll see some three three five. So um, I think Trent's biggest thing is is going to be changing things up. Um, I, I look for a lot more aggression, a lot more blitz packages. Um, you know, Trent Trent's dad, he's grown up around this game, so Trent's dad. Uh, Craig Bray was Oregon State's defensive coordinator back in with Dennis Erickson, uh, has been around. He was at ASU. He's, he's been kind of everywhere. So Trent has grown up with this game and, um, really kind of has a, a pulse on what he wants to do. And, and Trent knows the Pac-12. So, um, I'm anxious to see what Trent will be able to do with a full year with his guys kind of adjusting this defense. 
talent acquisition is always um, the you know you've got to you've got to be kind of nuanced in it at Oregon State because you're not going to necessarily get a bunch of four stars and five stars. But um, what I noticed just kind of looking at this year's class is so far, obviously the transfer portal changes things, but so far only 16 commitments. Um, was that just a function of how many guys are coming back? Or are they still holding some for after spring ball when you know more guys are going to flood the market? Yeah, it's it's interesting because we've watched, you know, Oregon State under Coach Smith the first couple of years was super heavy in the transfer portal and and really going after JUCOs to I think really fill those discrepancies and and the the misses of past years. This year I think he he really likes where his class is at, where his where his depth is at. Uh it's just a matter of of space. Right now, uh I have my scholarship count has Oregon State at 85 right now with the wow. guys um so they don't have a lot of room. There is, you know, obviously a little wiggle room as, as guys leave. But what we haven't seen is a huge, um, you know, Oregon State is being very selective with the transfer portal and who they're going after there. And, you know, it's not the mass exodus. Uh, Oregon State really hasn't lost many people. And frankly, I mean, they've lost they lost a true freshman quarterback who I think just got a little uh, a, a little impatient possibly. And then Champ Flemings just entered the portal in the past week, who was a wide receiver that got playing time, but I, I would say his best game came against Portland State. So, um, you know, he's a, a 5'5", 135-pound receiver. Um, he was quick, but um, I, just, I, I don't think it was a huge, huge difference maker. So, um, you know, Oregon State isn't seeing kind of the mass exodus or the mass, mass influx. And I think that's in part due to, you know, Coach Smith being such a veteran coach now and, and being this is start of year five. He's kind of getting his feet under him and getting the roster built the way he wants to see it. We got to see a lot of uh, Chance Nolan last year. What's the quarterback room like now? He said the true freshman Sam Vidlak uh, transfers out to Boise State. Um, who's left there? Is it going to be Nolan's show or their competition? What What are you looking for there? Yeah, I think it's going to be super interesting because the one player that they are really going after hard right now in the portal is JT Daniels. Um, so mm. that, yeah, so that is, that is a big target for Oregon State right now. That is maybe the one guy that they are going hard and heavy for. Um, you know, Chance Nolan, Chance Nolan has a high ceiling, but he also has a low basement. What I, what I like from Chance is his moxie. I like his ability to run, but he, he's not a, a deep ball guy. He, we saw this year kind of we were held back in some areas by, you know, his limitations. So if you could get a guy that could, I mean, honestly, you can say what you will about JT Daniels, but he may have thrown the, the most beautiful deep out pass that I've ever seen. I mean, that guy, beautiful. So um, if Oregon State could open up that that deep game a little bit more with a guy like Daniels, I, I think there's a lot of unknowns as well, just because you had Tristan Jebbia who sat out all year uh, with that hamstring injury that he sustained against Oregon the year before. So um, he's been out kind of bothered, hampered, who knows his health. And then Ben Goldbranson, who we saw in spring last year, we really liked what we saw from him, strong arm. Um, he was out all year with a, after shoulder surgery. So I think you're kind of left with wondering where those guys are, how healthy they are, how they'll come back. And um, so you're, and then you're left with a true freshman coming in and Travis Throckmorton. So if Oregon State is able to, I, I think they try to go after a portal guy to help uh, shore up some depth and and give some uh, competition to Nolan. That's uh that's a very exciting idea. I just spent a little time just thinking about what JT Daniels would look like in that offense with Jonathan Smith. Um, and it's exciting. I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, don't you 
It would help JT too. I mean, it's the type of offense that would, he's in for a year and if he lights it up, you know, Oregon State has some exciting wide receivers right now too. And you look at Trayshawn Harrison, uh, Micaiah Tung, there's, there's some guys there with some talent, um, that could open it up. Tyjon Lindsay's still in the program. So there's some speed. There's some athleticism. Let him light it up and, and then hopefully open the door for the NFL for him. And then uh, just one more for me, but um, who, who stands out to you in this recruiting class as, um, you know, guys who might make an early impact or you anticipate being, you know, star players down the road, whichever, but who's a couple of guys who kind of stand out to you? You know, I love the running back they signed this year in um, Damian Martinez out of uh, Texas. He put up over 4,400 yards. I, I spoke to his high school coach and just talked about what a great leader he was. 4,400 yards. Um 23 touchdowns as a senior. He had 700 yard games as a senior and that's playing basically just the first half of, of the game, each game. So, um, I, I do think he has a shot. I mean, Oregon State still has Deshaun Fenwick. They have Trey Lowe, um, Isaiah Newell. There's some guys in the mix there, but BJ Baylor entering the NFL draft, I, I think there's a spot and running backs that one position that you really could be a, a freshman and breakthrough. So he's one I'm watching. He also is on campus early. So, he is on campus working out winter conditioning right now. Um, and then I love Matthias Malachi Donaldson, edge rusher. He's not on campus yet, um, potentially for the spring. But, you know, if there's one area in Oregon State's defense that really needs short up, it's it's that pass rush and then also the D-line. So I look for him and potentially Quincy Wright, uh, D-tackle out of Texas. Those two I'm kind of watching just because Oregon State's D-line is so thin. Um and edge rush has been such a kind of a poor position over the past couple years. Uh, I think you shore that up. I, I think recruiting wise, Blue Adams has done a really good job the past two years, really going after some talented DBs, but those DBs, they're only as good as that D line. So, um, in the pass rush. So if they can get some pressure up front, I think it makes those guys job a little easier. Angie Machado doing a great job covering the Beavers for beaverblitz.com, uh, going uh, seven and six last year. Oregon State making a bowl game, uh, five and four winning conference records. You mentioned some of the big wins over USC and Utah, uh, that the, uh, Beavers had, but Angie, we appreciate you, uh, coming on and sharing some insights. Absolutely. Thanks, Angie. Thanks guys. All right. Next up, we're going to talk to our buddy Chris Fetters. Excuse me. Chris Fetters. He's choking me up here. Dogman.com does a great job covering the Hus- for, well, great job covering Washington Huskies. <laughs> almost forgot my drop there, David. Uh, Chris, man, thanks for coming on. How you doing? <laughs> Good. I, I think we need to get you guys to change it to the to the way Bill Walton does it with the woof. woof. I think you're right. <laughs> I think we should actually just have uh, – because Walton does – he does a bear growl. He does the whole thing now. We yeah. should probably just get him to do all the drops. Ooh. I think that's, that would be an excellent – that would you- be fun. You got yeah. a connection there? That that would really be good. We we probably have to talk about basketball though on the podcast though. I don't know about that. I just don't know what he would do with a Sun Devil. That would be the fun one to figure. It would out. be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, we're talking we're talking UW right now uh, with our man Chris Fetters. Uh, obviously, one of many Pacific Northwest teams to uh, make a change this off season. Uh, Kalen DeBoer in as the head coach. Uh, Jimmy Lake obviously out. Um, what have you just general first impressions of uh, DeBoer as uh, as the head coach, and, and what did you think of that hire? Well, I definitely think that in in getting to to talk to him and kind of understand what kind of makes him tick a little bit more, there there are certainly a lot of similarities 
to Chris Peterson, just in the sense that what you see is what you get when you talk to him and, and the people that talk to him, whether you're on the record, off the record, just hanging out, whatever, it feels like you're getting the same guy. And so that, that consistency is pretty remarkable because I think in a lot of ways you get the, the head coach that talks to the media and then you usually get a different side when it's the head coach talking off the record or talking in a, in a much different setting, for instance. Um, DeBoer has been pretty consistent all the way through, which has been refreshing. Um, you know, and then it's, you know, I, I understand that, you know, people are going to say it's kind of Fresno State North because of all the guys that it came up. But to be honest, you know, DeBoer brought in less guys than Peterson did when Peterson came from Boise State. So um, there were a couple of interesting additions. Jamarcus Shepard coming in as the receivers coach from Purdue uh, was was someone that they really, really targeted and went hard after. Um, and so they were really pleased with getting him. And then Inoki Brechterfield, the former Oregon State player, who's now the defensive line coach at Washington, but he was at uh, Wisconsin. He was just at Vanderbilt. He's been all over the place. Um, so to get him was was um, was an interesting move as well, getting him back into kind of the Pac-12 fold. But overall, I think the the most refreshing thing, at least from from the initial standpoint, is obviously they come into a situation where they've got to really recruit and they've really got to kind of reset the whole thing. And adding to it, with COVID being such a determinant factor the last couple of seasons, you just have not been able to get that same vibe of, you know, guys having a lot of connections with, with players and recruits because they're doing everything through Zoom. Now all of a sudden you see these guys offering players from all over the country, flying around all over the country because they can now. And so it, it feels like a real refreshing change and it feels like it's a real sea change. But the reality is, you know, our situation in regards to the pandemic has kind of changed quite a bit and that's really opened things up. But I think what Washington fans are going to find guys is that these guys really are going to recruit more on a national level. They've already, you know, offered kids from almost 20 different states, which is pretty unheard of for Washington. Um, so that, that's been really, really different. And then it certainly sounds like they've really gotten after it with the mat drills and the off-season workouts with the new strength and conditioning coach, Ron McKeefrey, that, that, um, Kalen DeBoer brought with him from Fresno State. So those are just a couple of things just right off the top of my head that, that have really stood out. Um, so there's, uh, obviously the, we talked about the recruiting rankings heading into it. When there's a coaching change, it's usually difficult, uh, to keep that going. Um, but it sounds like there's some positivity going forward 2023 and beyond. As a staff, do you feel like it's a, a staff that's well equipped to recruit? Cause we've, we've seen some top players, uh, from the state of Washington that seem to be going elsewhere all over the country. Uh, you know, is he someone that could put a staff together to try to keep some of those guys home? Well, certainly if you're a Washington fan, you gotta hope so. And they were able to get like Tristan Dunn. He, you know, he signed with Washington, even though he was verbally committed to Arizona State for a really, really long time. And obviously part of that is because of the meltdown at, you know, in Tempe and, and all that's going on. So yeah, I don't, that's such a dumpster fire. I don't think any kid would ever want to go into that situation right now. Um, and then there was like Vega Iwane from Graham Kapowson, who was a Washington commit before the cha- uh, staff changeover. And he ended up signing with Penn State. And I think Penn State maybe had offered him like two or three weeks earlier. So that was a, I'm sure that was a really disappointing one for this particular staff, especially since the one holdover 
from the Jimmy Lake staff was Scott Huff, the offensive line coach. So you would have thought the continuity there would have paid some dividends. Obviously, Josh Connerly is still the big, um, the big dog that's still in the fold. Kind of everyone's waiting for him to make his moves. Um, I believe he's already taken visits to Miami and Oklahoma and Michigan, I believe. And I think he's got SC and Oregon still. And then he's got an unofficial to Washington that he still plans on taking before making his final choice. Um, you know, so that, so that, you know, getting him to sign on the dotted line would be akin. I, I wrote about it earlier, um, this week. It would be like Chris Peterson being able to keep Buda Baker home or Steve Sarkeesian being able to get Desmond Trufant to stay home. Um, the story went that Nick Holt didn't even see campus before taking his first in-home visit. He went straight from the airport. They grabbed it. He grabbed a Washington shirt and they went straight to Desmond Trufant's house for an in-home. That was how important they saw a guy like Desmond, uh, to their ultimate recruiting strategy. And I'm sure these guys felt the same way about a guy like Josh Connerly. He can be that, um, that real significant guy that can stay home. And you're right. I mean, you lose JT to a Malau, you lose a Mecca Egbuka, um, last year to Ohio State, which is, I, I think that still stings with Washington fans. But with this portal too that, that, that you've got going on, you could see a lot of these guys starting to come home too. Um, Junior Alexander was at Arizona State and obviously we talked about the, the meltdown there. He's now back and he's come in as a transfer guy at Washington's receiver. Um, so you're, you, you, there's a possibility. I mean, you see it a lot. You see it a lot, um, with the basketball team and Washington guys are pretty, even though they want to travel a little bit, they're pretty loyal. They call it at least the campaign that they're using now, guys, they call it loyal to the soil and they want these guys to stay home, but they also keep recruiting them in the hopes that, you know, maybe a year or two from now, these guys are going to be like, you know what? Maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe staying at Washington would have been the right play all along. So I think these, these guys are playing to it. I would say the one other thing I'd add is that this is really different in the way that Washington has recruited normally because the coaches have already or always kind of taken the lead on this and there was always a recruiting coordinator. But now the guy that's really running the player personnel stuff is a guy named Courtney Morgan who came in from Michigan, but he's really, really well known up and down the West Coast. Um, played his high school ball in the LA area. His alma mater is Michigan. He went there and played. And, but he has apparently got an, an, an amazing reputation in the recruiting community. And, and I think they have a plan to really shake things up in terms of their recruiting strategy, but he is not a coach. You know, he's going to be in the office, kind of the maestro behind the scenes, so to speak. And that's not, that's not the way Washington's ever recruited before. So I think there's a level of curiosity with this staff, the way it's put together and how they recruit with a guy kind of in the office pulling the strings. That's going to be interesting to watch. You know, looking at the departures, obviously, um, there's going to be some, some gaps in the defensive back core. And, um, you know, if Kirkland does, if he does not return, um, you know, losing two offensive linemen, but what's your, uh, what I keep going back to is that Washington is not too far removed from recruiting at like a pretty consistent top 25 level, um, towards the end of the Peterson era. Um, what's, what is DeBoer inheriting? Um, is it the potential for this team? Is there potential, I should say, uh, for this team to be goodish immediately? Or is there going to be, um, in your eyes, uh, a, a rebuilding period where people need to be patient? Well, it's really the $64 question because we thought that the train was just going to keep rolling from Peterson to Lake and there wasn't going to be any stopping 
because everything was in place. They already knew how they were recruiting. They were recruiting at a top 20, 25 level at that point. And the, and Lake was just going to keep the train rolling down the tracks and everything was going to be great. And we saw how quickly that thing just derailed. I mean, really quickly. Um, so I'm, I'm reluctant to think that these guys can just go ahead and put the train on the tracks and just keep it going back down the, 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 the trail like it was before. But, um, there is a lot of talent here, guys. They, they have, there has been a number of kids that have gone through the transfer portal, but they've, they've kind of replaced those guys a little bit. At least it looks like on paper and they haven't really suffered a ton of attrition in that regard. Uh, like you said, David, the, you know, they do lose some secondary guys. They lose Kyler Gordon. They lose Trent McDuffie. They lose, uh, Bookie Radley Hiles. You know, those are three big pieces that they're going to have to replace. Um, and, and Jordan Perryman is a, a defensive back from UC Davis that they've gotten in. Um, you know, it looks like they've got a chance to, um, maybe do some things right away with, with some of these other guys that are coming in. Um, like a Tristan Dunn, the kid I told you about from Sumner, who was originally committed to Arizona State. You know, we've seen some guys play as true freshmen in that secondary and that secondary comes back as the number one pass defense in the country. Obviously, that's going to be a really, really hard thing to do when you lose three starters. Um, but I think that this staff is, is pretty well versed and, and Juice Brown, the, the defensive backs coach and, and Chuck Morrell, the other defensive backs coach, I, they obviously have been around a little bit and they have a nice kind of pedigree of how they've done in the coaching ranks. So we'll see how it goes on that score. They're, I think they're going to change things up a little bit in terms of scheme. They're not really going to run the exact same scheme that Pete Kwiatkowski and Jimmy Lake ran at Washington under Chris Peterson. Um, they're going to, they're going to have another kind of a husky, they call it, which is ironic. I mean, they, they called it a husky when it was at Fresno State. <laughs> um, but it's going to be a, a kind of a, a hybrid linebacker DB, uh, maybe play a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, they picked up a kid, Demario King from Cerritos College, about 6'3, 205, 210. They want a guy who can play the slot, who can play in space but they can also get after the quarterback a little bit from time to time, kind of play that that natural nickel spot, but do it with a much, much bigger kid. Um, so we'll see how that goes. There, it, Like I said, until we get to spring football, guys, it's going to be hard to see how this defense really goes, but obviously the biggest sea change is going to be on the offense. I mean, Kalen DeBoer was brought in because of the offense that he runs um, with Ryan Grubb, and, and then having a guy like Jamarcus Shepard run in the passing game, um, there, that thing is going to be so different. Um, that's why it's going to be difficult to know exactly how the, the kids are going to react to that thing. But you have guys coming back at every position. The only guy that they're really, really going to miss, you, you guys mentioned, uh, Jackson Kirkland. That's going to be an interesting scenario too, because even if he does want to come back and he does get the appeal and all that, is he even going to be able to be available for spring ball, for instance? Because his ankle and, and everything else, he might still be, it still needs to heal. So we'll see what happens on that. But the only guy they really lose is Kate Otten, the tight end. I mean, they lose Luke Wattenberg, the center, but they've got guys in there to replace him. Um, they lose Terrell Bynum, who, who transferred to USC, but they've got Roma Dunze back. They've got Jalen McMillan back. Um, uh, Jalen uh, Polk is back. Taj Davis is back. And then you bring in the kind of the band back together with the Kennedy Catholic kids and Jabez uh, Tanay and Junior Alexander, along with Sam Heward, uh, throwing balls to them, as well as um, Dylan Morris, the incumbent quarterback. 
And then they brought in Michael Penix from Indiana, who actually played under Kalen DeBoer when DeBoer was the offensive coordinator at Indiana a couple years ago. So there are some, some things and some strings that you can pull and, and you can see where things are going on paper. But until we see what happens out there in spring ball, actually seeing those guys run around a bit, you know, who knows exactly what's going to happen. But, you know, again, the main reason that Kalen DeBoer was hired was because of his prowess on offense and his ability to, to move the ball down the field and score points. So, um, I think Washington fans have got to be really intrigued with that possibility. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I hope that they can get the, get the train back on the tracks and, and get it going the way it was supposed to go under Jimmy Lake. And we'll see how much coaching plays a part in that because coaching could play a huge part in the difference between what happened last year and the turnaround to what happens this fall. Yeah, scores of points should lead to a much better record than 4-8 and eight where Washington was last year. Uncharted You'd territory think. for the Huskies, yeah. But Chris Fetter is doing a great job over at dogman.com. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Oh, anytime, guys, anytime. Thank you, Chris. Of course. Oregon Ducks. All right, now we are joined by Matt Preem from Duck Territory, the Oregon site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I must say, I was just corrected. Uh, we have been mispronouncing Matt's last name on this show. This, this podcast of the Pac-12, this podcast of champions from the very beginning, from, <laughs> from literally the first minute we talked about you. Matt, how have you let us go on this long? Uh, it's kind of an internal running joke I have because everyone literally pronounces it wrong. And, and honestly, David, uh, I'm a little surprised I even corrected you myself. I, I, it's, one of those things I just have stopped caring and you just happen to be the one person for this entire 2020 year that I probably will correct. That's beautiful because I think you've now set the tone for our fives, maybe tens of listeners. Um, <laughs> they'll now, uh, they'll now know. Um, Matt does a great job for, uh, duck territory. Um, it's been a wild, wild off season, uh, yeah. for Oregon. Um, Miami finally came calling, it seems, at the uh, right time, um, and Mario Cristobal left. Um, first off, just what's your kind of take on that? Because I know uh, Oregon was generally pleased with what he did at um, up in Eugene, but there was an element of maybe there's a little bit left to excavate in terms of, um, you know, turning all of that talent into a potential national title contender. What was your kind of feeling on Cristobal and, and him taking this opportunity to leave? Yeah, I, I think it would be unfair um, if someone was to look at the Cristobal era and say the program uh, was not in a better place when he left it because it's far from the opposite. The talent has never been as good as it is right now at Oregon. Um, they won a Rose Bowl. They played in three straight Pac-12 championship games. They won two of them. Um, they won two bowl games under Mario Cristobal uh, during his time at Oregon. Um, the commitment from the school, from the athletic department, and from the fan base significantly increased during the time that Mario Cristobal was at Oregon. So I, I think the overarching theme is, is things are in a better place during his time and uh, is better off from when he assumed the program. Um, but there are also some areas that they could definitely improve upon. Um, there are some areas that they definitely needed to be better at. And I think the old adage that 
you need to work smarter, not harder kind of fits the Mario Cristobal persona um, of where this program was at, because there is no person in the country that will outwork Mario Cristobal. But if, if you are not a productive worker, you're wasting so much time that you could be doing other things. And I think I've, that kind of felt like where this program was at. They had so much talent, but it was so hard to get that talent to operate at high high levels at a consistent period um, and, and getting the most out of the players that you have on your roster um, is probably the best way to look at it. And fair or not, like he's going to be looked at as a coach that did not get even close to the level of potential that Justin Herbert is showing in the NFL while at Oregon. Yeah. And that was uh, kind of one of the other points I was going to touch on, but um, following uh, Cristobal, Oregon had um, what, I was I was personally invested in Oregon's coaching search because at different junctures um it was reported by various entities that um you guys might be kind enough to take Chip Kelly off of our hands um but in the end they uh they landed on Dan Lanning uh the defensive coordinator for national champion Georgia um what's your sense of Lanning so far what was your reaction to the hire um and uh we'll talk about his staff in a second but what do you what are your impressions early on of uh, him as a as a head coach? Yeah, he's it, it's a strange deal um, personally for me, where this is the first time I'm 35 uh, and I'm the same age as Dan Lanning. Um, <laughs> I, I think that is very hard for me to wrap my head around right now because um, I still think that I am a young person and that I usually associate head coaches as being someone that's got some gray hairs and has been around the world plenty of times. Um, Landing is quite opposite of that. And it's kind of refreshing. Um, I threw out uh, a tweet when we were recording this, you know, a couple of minutes beforehand. Um, he's doing a national signing day um, luncheon with the biggest booster club in town uh, in Eugene. And they have it streamed and I was watching it and he was just joking and being a human. And I think that's, what makes him probably so relatable to recruits, um, to, to boosters, to administrators, to fellow assistants is under Cristobal 100%. Uh, I'm sure you know this with Chip Kelly. He was in this way as well. Um, uh, Mark Helfrich was certainly in this way. Um, head coaches by nature are always buttoned up and it's so hard to get their persona to come out and to see the human side of things with these people. Cause they're, they're, they're people too. They have lives outside of football. And I think in the short time that we've been around Dan Lanning, you see that you see him crack jokes. You see him make references, um, you know, with Tosh Lupoy, he was talking about the defense and experiences um, on the recruiting trail that he's gone through. And Tosh was giving his story and, you know, it was a very good one and hard for him, for Dan Lanning to pass up. And he, his answer is, well, I, I played video games with the recruit. And, you know, that's a hundred percent, uh, a reference to Tosh Lupoy and his recruiting prowess of always being able to, to, to get with kids and, and connect with them. And the, the, the lore of Tosh playing video games during his time in the Pac 12 and the early 2010s, uh, of recruiting. And so I, I think the Dan Lanning aspect is he's different. He's impressive when he speaks and everyone that's a coach that talks about Dan Lanning always references just, he's one of the best X's nose, if not the best X's nose 
coach that that, that particular assistant coach has been around. That, that seems to be a common trait. So um, looking at the staff that uh, Lanning has assembled, um, I'm struck by, because I'm very familiar with Adrian Clem and Demetrius Martin uh, from their time at UCLA, and then Tosh Lapoy, obviously, from his many stops in the Pac-12. Um, this, just eyeballing it, looks like it's going to be one of the best recruiting staffs in the Pac-12, if not just the very best. Um, what's your sense of um, kind of the philosophy that Lanning has put into assembling his staff um, and what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses at this point? Yeah, he's made it known a couple of times now that he, that this staff is yes, very good on the recruiting trail, but he does not want them to be known for just being a bunch of good recruiters and they can't develop talent. And I think that goes with who they've hired. Um, you know, Junior Adams, the receivers coach and co-offensive coordinator, uh, his biggest kind of develop Meant from a receiver standpoint is Cooper Cup of the Rams and you know probably the best receiver in the NFL right now and probably having the best season you know we've seen in a long time at that level um obviously Cooper Cup's continued to get better once he got to the NFL but Junior Adams at Eastern Washington put him in the league um, I think you could argue that Washington's offense the last couple of years has has not been as good at, at receiver and it's because They've not recruited the receiver position uh, as, as well. Um, as, and that's a direct indicator too of his, his impact for the Huskies. Um, you look at Tosh Lupoy, there's no real argument there that you can make of developing. He, he's a really good coach on the field. Um, Carlos Lachlan is their running backs coach and someone that probably doesn't have a lot of name recognition, but he helped put five players in the NFL at Memphis in about a two and a half year period when he was on that staff. Um, I think that's pretty impressive when you look at um, finding talent in an area that or a school that you're not really known to be an elite program and, and getting guys into the NFL. Um, but to your point, I, I agree. I think this is the best staff in the Pac-12 from a recruiting standpoint. That's probably going to be their biggest strength. Um, you, Dan Lanning, Tosh Lupoy, Demetrius Martin. Um, I'm missing one more. Oh, I think it's Adrian Clem. Adrian Clem, yeah. Yeah, the, all of these guys have five-star commits to their names. Um, they have the most among Pac-12 coaches and coaching staffs um, in this year going into 2022. So they, they're they just ahead of USC, I think, by one, one or two. Um this is a loaded coaching staff that should have no problem getting the talent to Eugene. Absolutely. Um, then I, I would say um, from a departure standpoint, obviously Oregon had its requisite number of guys just leaving for the NFL. Um, there were a couple of interesting departures. Travis Dye, I think is the one that kind of stood out for me was sure. um, him electing to head back to LA um, to go to USC. Um, I guess it makes sense as a homecoming thing, but did that one strike you as odd? And then just generally, how do you think um, Oregon has done kind of replacing these guys? I mean, there's no replacing a guy like Thibodeau, but how have you, how do you think they've done so far in filling these holes? Yeah, the the decision by Travis Dice certainly was an, a shocker because everyone here was thinking, hey, he's either going to go pro or he's going to come back to Oregon. No one really considered the, the third option of hitting the portal and seeing what's out there. And I actually kind of thought it made – after he did it, um, I, cause I never even thought that the, the decision was on the table for him to do that. But after he did it and I reflected on it, 
kind of makes a lot of sense and probably what I would have done if I was in his shoes. Um, anyways, but looking at what they've been able to do since then, um, Jordan James, a four-star running back out of Tennessee, flipped from Georgia to, to Oregon and kind of gives them a much-needed guy on the depth chart because they only had a couple scholarship players at that spot. Um, one of them was playing receiver and running back at the same time. Um, one of them is coming off back-to-back injuries um, that prevented him from playing in 2020 and also playing in 2021 um it's going to be interesting to see how you know this this position group kind of maneuvers um receiver Devin Williams went off to the NFL um they've they don't have a lot of talent at that I shouldn't say they don't have a lot of talent they do they don't have a lot of bodies at that position they have seven receivers on roster right now um that's nowhere near the, the number that you need to have an effective offense you know, guys are going to get hurt. Guys aren't going to play good every week. You, you need more than seven guys. And so seeing how they kind of maneuver that will be interesting. Um, and then other guys that went pro, obviously Kayvon Thibodeau went pro. That's not expected or unexpected. You know, everyone in their right minds understood that he might be the number one pick. Um, but I think Oregon is in a position where it's really unique where that you could see the number one player go pro and yet they be fine at that position group because Everyone else around Kayvon Thibodeau is back. Three of the five best interior defensive linemen in the Pac-12 in 2021 are on Oregon's roster in 2022. Braden Swinson was the guy that started in place of Kayvon Thibodeau at Ohio State and had a dominant performance in that game and was really good when Thibodeau could not play early on in the half of the 2021 season. So, They've, they've got some guys in, in positions here where they could replace, I think, to, as a collective unit, the, the production that came on to it. They don't have a guy on roster that you can just plug in and say, hey, he's going to make up everything that Thibodeau did. They don't have two guys that you just say, these two guys are going to do everything Cape on Thibodeau did. But as a unit, as a whole, when you take in the 10, 15 guys that they have along the D line, they should be able to kind of absorb all that production that Kayvon had. Um, and just space it out. Absolutely. And then, uh, finally, um, quarterback was, I think for a lot of the, the, the watchers, the daily watchers of Oregon was probably one of the most frustrating, um, aspects of that team, uh, with Anthony Brown's up and downs, ups and downs, um, kind of telling the tale, um, in a lot of ways for Oregon. Uh, you know, he had one of his best games of the season against Ohio State. They win that game and then, um, has, has much more trouble against Utah. Um, Bo Nix, uh, coming in the transfer portal. Um, how likely is it that he just starts from the jump? Um, do you think there's going to be any real competition, um, internally? Do you think the spring will be a competitive practice or will it be this is Bo Nix's job to lose? I, I think it's Bo Nix's job to lose, but, um, Dan Lanning will lose the locker room if he just automatically names Bo Nix the starter and he's not going to do that. It'll be an open competition. I just don't think the other quarterbacks that Oregon have on their has on their roster will will be better than Bo Nix. Um it 2021 at quarterback it was an interesting year for Oregon and at the at the beginning of the year I felt like it was just Anthony Brown not being a quarterback that could throw the ball successfully downfield and do it consistently. Um, 
he had really bad games in the first half of the season. Um, but then towards the end, and then especially in the bowl game, you saw the downfield throwing and you saw the accuracy, especially in, in the bowl game against Oklahoma where they had multiple touchdown passes of 30 yards or more. And I, at the end of the year, I was wondering, was it more so scheme? Was it more so the, the, the struggles that Oregon had at quarterback because of the play calling and not the player? And the biggest issue for Oregon in 2021 was can can Oregon throw the football consistently downfield to loosen up the run game? And if they could, they were pretty darn good. Their offense was elite. Um, and when they chose chose not to throw downfield or they couldn't throw downfield, it maybe became very average. And I think with Bo Nix, you're getting a guy that's already a better thrower than than Anthony Brown was. Um, he's probably a better runner than Anthony Brown was. Um, if Bo Nix just plays, you know, around his averages against weaker defenses in the Pac-12 than he faces uh, in the SEC, their play should go up um, on offense in 2022. But we'll see. I mean, Ty Thompson's highly regarded. Um, Jay Butterfield was a, was a, a top prospect a couple of years ago coming out. Um, I, I I think I expect Bo Nix to be the starter. Um, but they have made it very clear that he's not just automatically the number one guy. He's going to have to earn that, uh, and he's going to have to beat out two younger guys that certainly have a ton of potential. Awesome stuff, Matt. Really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's signing day. I probably should mention that. We're recording this on Wednesday, um, but signing day is barely a thing these days. Yeah. Anything, anything still interesting to happen today for Oregon? Yeah, well, um, as of our recording here, um, it's almost 1.30 on the West Coast. They're waiting on one more guy, Dave Uli, um, four-star interior offensive lineman um, out of Washington. He's choosing between USC, Miami, and Oregon. He's expected to land with Oregon, um, and it would be a pretty significant win for the Ducks because – he decommitted uh, after Mario Cristobal decided to leave for Miami and then went to Miami the first weekend of the recruiting period in January. And the Cristobals flowed in. The, the, everyone said the momentum was going Oregon, uh, Miami's way. Dave was, was not going to sign with Oregon. And then uh, the last weekend of recruiting shows up, and, and Dave is still uncertain if he's even going to take his visit to Oregon. Ends up doing it. And has been was blown away by the staff, really impressed. And Miami's been fighting tooth and nail to try and get him back onto to Miami's side. And doesn't look like it's going to happen. We'll see if there maybe there's a late surprise. But um, Miami took a commitment. And this is kind of <laughs> what Mario does. Uh, Mario's all about optics. Um, Miami did take a three-star interior offensive lineman and his commitment earlier. Uh, on signing day and the kid said he picked Miami over Oregon. Um, and I've never heard of the kid. I'm not trying to disparage him at all. And it's awesome for him to get an opportunity to play college football, but I can tell you right now, Oregon was never recruiting this kid. I'm not going to say him by his name because I don't want to slam him, but <laughs> that's just my, that's just Mario tactics of always trying to find a way to, to get himself in a better position. Um, and, and, that would indicate Oregon's probably getting Dave. Everything's, you know, leading into today was, was Dave was going to sign with Oregon. And 
that would probably put, I think I did the numbers and unless there's some crazy changes in the next couple hours, it's going to put Oregon back into the top 25. And um, that's a heck of a climb from where they were just a couple of days ago when they were in the fifties. Uh, right. And they don't have a ton of room. They can't, they couldn't sign 25 guys. So to, to get themselves back into the top 25 with a small class is a, is a pretty big win for Dan Lanning. All right. Awesome stuff from Matt Preem. You can follow him at Duck Territory or at Matt Preem on Twitter. Uh, thanks so much, Matt. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. We got one last uh, interview to do about the Pacific Northwest schools, and we're going to talk about the Washington State Cougars. Actually, that's the meow. Let's give them the growl. Washington State Cougars. That's way better. Uh, we got J.B. Vinnick. Uh, doing a great job covering the Cougs for Cougfan.com. We had David, uh, David Woods had to step away because he's going to cover that UCLA Arizona basketball game. So, uh, Jamie and I will talk, but Jamie, thanks for uh, coming on the show. How are you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. Uh, this is the, the fourth Pacific Northwest team we were talking about on the podcast of champions this week and the third three or four that have lost their head coach, but Jake Dickert, you know, he was over being able to be the interim head coach last year. Seemed like he won the fan base over, won the team over. It would seem like an overwhelming pick for him to be uh, the next head coach. Pat Chun, you know, made that call. It seems like everyone up in uh, Pullman's pretty happy about it. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think there were some people that were maybe a little skittish just because he hadn't been a head coach before. He only had six games of head coaching experience. Um, and then you have the people who were going to hate no matter what it was because they white knighted Nick Rolovich. So those people can, can make their own decisions about that. But, um, yeah, I mean, overall, I do think that he was kind of the popular choice. I think it would have been very hard on, on the team to have to go through another coaching change. And, you know, he did, I think he did more than enough to, to earn that job, you know, taking over in a very tumultuous time in a very, you know, unprecedented circumstances. And then he goes and he goes first, first game, loses the close one to BYU goes down and blows out Arizona and Arizona State and Tempe, uh, you know, gives Oregon a fight, uh, max Arizona to become bowl eligible, and then does what hadn't been done in almost 10 years and wins the Apple Cup. So I think that alone would have probably been enough. But I think the genuine, uh, the general feeling around kind of the program and people who cover the program and are close to the program is that this was the correct move to keep Dickard on and to give him this opportunity. Um, you know, and a big reason for that is Washington State's defense has improved so much in, you know, the year and a half that Dickert's had, you know, been in charge of them. And I think, you know, it's a, a good sign of what they may be able to do as a whole team when he's the head coach. You know, Washington State's defense was absolutely porous in 2019. Dickert takes over, um, and they were pretty darn good this year. They forced a lot of turnovers and, you know, kept them in a lot of games. So looking at the coaching staff now, it's a kind of a unique situation. Sometimes you have an interim come in. He was on staff. You retain a lot of guys, but obviously with the relevant situation, the COVID vaccine stuff, uh, you know, a few of those guys were already gone. What's the, the general consensus of it? Is it pretty much a completely new staff or what's the makeup right now? Yeah. So the only guy, they, they retain someone like the, the support staff, quality control, uh, analysts, grad assistants, et cetera. Uh, the only guy in addition to Dickard, of course, that was a full-time staff member that is remaining a full-time staff member is AJ Cooper, who's the edge coach. Uh, one of the more highly regarded coaches on staff, primarily because Washington State's edges were just phenomenal this past year. And then also Jordan Malone was a defensive assistant or an analyst. He got promoted to cornerbacks coach midseason when John Richardson, the cornerbacks coach at the time, was fired for not being in compliance with the, the vaccine mandate. And now Malone's going to be coaching safeties 
um, and Nichols. Outside of that, everyone else, uh, it was turnover. There's only a few remaining coaches. Uh, Brian Smith, Andre Allen, and Kyle Krantz were the offensive coordinator, wide receivers coach, and special teams coordinator, uh, respectively. They were not brought back. Uh, they had two veteran guys. Dennis McKnight was coaching the O-line. Dan Morrison was at quarterback. But those were guys who there was never intention to keep them beyond a few months. They were simply here just to help out because they knew the run and shoot. But, you know, we, we talked to them back in October, November when they first got here, and they, they had no intentions of sticking around. They were just here to help. And then everything else is new. So new coordinators, uh, new positional coaches, they, they really went kind of all over. They, a lot of guys from Texas, um, they found a lot of connections. And one of the things that Dickert wanted to do is he wanted to bring back guys who had coached at Washington State before. So offensive coordinator Eric Morris, he had been here as an assistant. Uh, wide receivers coach Joel Filani had been here as an assistant. Clay McGuire, the offensive line coach, was the offensive line coach at Washington State for several years before moving back down to Texas. Uh, cornerbacks coach Ray Brown, he was an assistant for a year. So they really went out of their way to bring in some guys with experience in Pullman because it's such a unique place. It's a lot easier when you have guys that have this type of experience and kind of know what it takes to, to coach in a living Pullman. Um, as far as, so you get the staff that's coming together. What's the offense going to look like with Eric Morris uh, running the show? Yeah. So they're going to go back to somewhat of an air raid. Um, it's not going to be the Mike Leach air raid where you throw 97 times a game. Um, I think that really no one runs that style of air raid anymore besides Leach. I mean, if you look across college football and even in the NFL, the teams that run the air raid, it's a variation. There's more run game involved. Um, so what Dickert is dubbing it the coup grade, it's going to be an air raid with their own kind of twist on it. The big thing about it is they're going to bring back tight ends. And there hasn't been a tight end at Washington State since 2011. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, the last tight end catch uh, that a Washington from a Washington State player came in the Apple Cup in 2011, so about 10 years. So they've already brought back a couple guys. They have a walk-on coming in. Uh, they got Andre Dollar, who was committed to Oregon. They flipped him. And then there, there's talk they're going to move a couple guys – uh, from the defensive side of the ball to tight end, and then they may add another guy via the portal. So that's kind of the big difference is they're going to go back to kind of an, an air raid style, um, you know, utilizing tight ends, still with the vertical passing game. I think for Washington State to succeed in the Pac-12, they have to have some kind of high-powered offense. They just won't be able to get the athletes to run a pro style or a or have a, such an elite defense where they're holding teams to 11, 12 points a game. So it's going to be more of what the Leach air raid was, but a little more of the modernized version with a little more uh, run game with tight ends and just kind of, a again, like a, a different version, maybe closer to what USC ran with, with Graham Harrell and maybe what kind of the Cardinals run with Cliff Kingsbury. The, uh, for any kind of offense to run, obviously you need a quarterback. And Jaden Delora, he, he's out of town. He heads off to uh, Arizona. But then you have Cameron Ward coming in. Um What's, what else, you know, besides Ward, maybe talk about him and then what the quarterback room is like right now. Yeah, so obviously Ward's, you know, was uh, was one of the big steals or one of the big signings of the class. I mean, a guy that I know people have called a generational talent. I, I can't remember exactly who referred. It might have been Chris Hummer from 247 uh, said that, that he's a potential generational talent, a guy that just completely got overlooked in high school because he ran the wing tee and threw, a hundred, threw the ball 100 times his senior year. So no one knew about him. There was no tape on him throwing the ball. Had huge years at Incarnate Word under Morris. Uh, helped Morris turn that program around now. He's expected to be the guy at Washington State. Uh, but the Cougars don't have a ton of depth. I mean, they lost three quarterbacks from last year, not just Delora, but backups Jarrett Garantano and Cameron Cooper. 
So after that, you know, they've got some young guys, uh, scholarship guys and Xavier Ward and John Mateer. Ward will be in his second year. Mateer, they just signed uh, yesterday. And then a couple of walk-ons. Victor Gabalas is a guy that he actually came in a couple times this year, filled in for Delora uh, when he was hurt against USC, and then filled in for Delora when he was hurt in the Sun Bowl. Um, so he has experience. He's a PWO who probably will end up on scholarship. And then they have some other walk-ons in the program, uh, Chris Irvin from Idaho, Luke Holcomb from Tuolup. And then they just added the guy, J.P. Zamora, pretty highly rated uh, recruit from, from Pasco up here in Washington, uh, but a guy they added as a PWO. So they've shored up a little bit of the depth. I do think that they're going to probably look for a JUCO or a grad transfer quarterback just to have a little more depth in that room because otherwise it is very, very young. And I think they would like to have a contingency plan that doesn't come down to we have to throw someone into the fire like they sometimes had to do this year, you know, where Gabalas, who really only even got first and second team reps in fall camp uh, for the first time, was thrust into a couple of really key moments. Um, so I do think they want to add a little bit of depth there. The uh, recruiting rankings um, nationally, you know, we're just uh, one day away from uh, the, the old, I guess, national signing day. 64th in the nation, ninth in the Pac-12. And if you include the transfers, moves up a little bit. 57th, 57th nationally and ninth in the Pac-12. Um, you know, when you make a coaching change, it's it's not always easy. But what do you see as far as this staff is going to be able to do recruiting-wise? And, you know, what, how do you think they can maximize the, their ability to recruit and bring in some acquired talent in this uh, era of the transfer portal? Yeah, well, I think Washington State's a, a team that is in a very interesting uh, place with the portal. On one hand, they're, it's going to be a spot where guys might want to jump to the highest levels. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast when it comes to Washington State is, you know, they are a team that hypothetically a guy could have a huge year and say, I want to go play big-time SEC ball or play at the top of the Big Ten or something. On the flip side of that, they're going to usually be able to offer playing time um, because there's going to be a lot of roster churning. So I think that helps them get some of the guys they've gotten via the portal. And the other part of the recruiting and what I think Dickert has done a good job at as he has said for a while, his home, their home base and their kind of foundational locations are going to be Washington, Idaho, Oregon, California, and, and Hawaii. But what we saw here is Dickert went heavy into Texas these last couple of weeks. I mean, they had 11 visitors uh, over the last two weeks, most of them from Texas. They closed nine of them. One guy didn't have an offer by the time his visit was done. So they essentially went nine for 10. And those guys were primarily Texas guys. And that's where you know, Joel Filani is a Texas guy. Clay McGuire has been a Texas guy. Uh, Eric Morris, Texas guy. So Texas has, has not been a huge pipeline to Washington State, and even the guys they've got in the past haven't always panned out. That's the big thing that was kind of noticeable is that, you know, they really made a footprint in Texas. And then I think ultimately if you look up and down the class, it's not overly flashy. Uh, a Washington State class isn't normally. It's, again, just the nature of the beast. They – Every now and then they'll pull a four-star kid or, or win a big recruiting battle. But ultimately, it's a lot of, you know, low to mid three-stars with some high three-stars sprinkled in. Uh, but I, I do think Dicker did a good job of not panicking, especially during the December signing period. Not just taking guys to fill numbers, but finding guys that fit what they want to do because they do want a unique offense. Now, in the air raid, it's not for everyone. And their defense is very unique in that they focus on forcing turnovers in their 4-2-5. So I think they did a good job identifying, you know, more going for good football players than the high upside necessarily or the, the big-time stars where maybe, yeah, they could have maybe gotten a high three-star, but was he going to fit? 
maybe not. You don't want to bring in a guy for his star rankings and then watch him fizzle out in a year. You'd rather take the lower-ranked guy that actually fits what you want to do, and I think they did a pretty good job of that. Yeah. Um, one last thing for you, JB. I, I got to cover uh, Clay McGuire last year at USC. They had made some pretty, you know, underwhelming uh, position coach hires. He was one I definitely liked, and, uh, you know, I, I think – of all the guys that were on Clay Helton's staff, I mean, he got one of the better jobs going to another Power Five program at Washington State, you know, being able to coach in an air raid type of situation again. I think he's going to do some good things for uh, for the Cougs up there on the offensive line. Yeah, I think there's certainly a hope that he will. I mean, he did really good things the first time he was here. He developed some some pretty good or some pretty darn good players, guys that became draft picks, that became All-Americans. Um, from and these were guys that were under recruited, low three stars that he did a good job with. He's going to have his work cut out for him. You know, Washington State lost both of their starting tackles. Uh, they lost their starting center who got hurt and was kind of playing a rotational role towards the end of the season. They lost uh, one of their rotational right guards. So that's a very very new offensive line. They only really returned two starters, um, and those are both guys who played guard but could end up at tackle. And then the guy who filled in for the injured center that's Connor Dominus. So there's a lot of use, and then they had to kind of rebuild the line. They were very thin. They just added six offensive linemen in this recruiting class, and the expectation is they'll probably add a veteran or two in the portal. So uh, he's coming into to a pretty, you know, a job where he's going to have to develop some guys. He's going to have to, uh, you know, to get get going and, and get these guys up to the size they need to be and up to the up to speed with the college game. You know, they had a lot of guys filling in the Sun Bowl that uh, looked like they were a little bit overwhelmed a couple of guys making their first career appearances so he, it's going to be a challenge he's not coming into a veteran line by any means but I, I think that his track record shows that he's very much capable or he's very capable of turning some of these young guys into very very effective players as he has in the past but jamie thanks so much for uh, coming on make sure you check out his work over at kookfan.com thanks again man yeah appreciate it thanks for having me Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, David, another uh, information-packed episode because we had experts on, not just us talking, but uh, some definitely some turnover up there in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I think there's some optimism, though. I mean, some good hires, and we'll uh, we'll see where everyone goes. Yeah, hope springs eternal. Uh, we'll see. I mean, honestly, get a little meta. Um, I'm editing this Frankenstein monster of a podcast together, so who knows? By this point, people may be like, "What did I just listen to?" It was like there was a there was a there was a there was an opera going on the entire way through or whatever <laughs> I spliced into here. Who knows? Because uh, just taking everyone behind the curtain, I did a separate one. Then we just mixed and matched which ones we were doing for the last hour. Who knows who we talked to? We have no idea. It's chaos. 
It's it's gonna be chaos. No, I know you guys are used to me editing stuff. This is all David, so hopefully it comes out good. I'm assuming it's gonna come out good. He's gonna, you know, once a quarter maybe you you edit a show. Is that about right? Maybe maybe not that often. Yeah, man. But it's always but but here's the thing. When I do it, it is always some mess like this because it's some chaotic situation where neither of us has any time, and so it's like we've we've done this. A number of times where like yeah. I end up editing the show, but it's not as simple as just like, oh, stick the bumper on it and there we go. No, it's uh yeah, splice together these like five audio tracks, see what happens. Yeah. Um the the other the other Arizona State assistant, I can't believe you know, Zach Hill also resigned, so the offensive coordinator. Again, so you lose- again and and again. Who cares? <laughs> That's half. That's half of the entire staff. Great, the guy who broke Jaden Daniels is gone. That should be a benefit for them if they could maintain their situation, which they can't. Herm Edwards needs to go. Yeah. Um, do you want to try to do a few questions real Let's quick? Let's do a couple or? of questions. Let's knock a few out. All right, this is from Dev Knoll. David's Twitter picture. I was waiting until the offseason to ask David who the guy in his Twitter profile picture was. I just saw a picture of Bill Walton, and I think that was him. But when I went back to check the Twitter, I found that it's been changed. What gives? So was it Bill Walton? It was Bill Walton. Um, and then uh, UCLA's graphics guy uh, for football uh, moved on from UCLA. And um, I uh, had some fun times uh, two or three years ago making fun of some of his graphics. So I changed my profile picture back to uh, one of his graphics. Nice. Um, which is what it is now. And then he says, P.S. I'm a Stanford fan. I missed the episode where you asked the three of us to write in. So I'm letting you know now. Go card. Can't get much worse from here, right? Do they no. say that go card? I, I haven't heard that one, but sure. I mean, well, I don't know. he speaks. He speaks for a full third of the fan base. So. <laughs> I thought there was three others, so there's like that. He's twenty five. He speaks for a quarter, then. Okay, yeah. Uh, we got one from our buddy Drew about UCLA. Is David the devil approaches you with a deal? This is kind of like that. Uh, the devil went down to Georgia. I think mm-hmm. same scenario. Mm-hmm. He says he promises you promises you UCLA will go on a magical. Chip Kelly led run to the 2022-23 national championship where they defeat Alabama 46 to 9 in the championship game. But in exchange, JJ Abrams will be allowed to make a new Star Wars trilogy in which Jar Jar Binks will not only be featured, but a primary character. And you must not only watch the films many times, but actively defend them online. But no human will ever know you're responsible for the films getting made because you and everyone you've ever met would be hunted down by nerds worldwide if the truth were ever exposed. What would you do? This is awesome. I think this is actually pretty easy. Huh? I I, I would not take the deal. (laughs) You got to understand, I am so used to UCLA. I I realized this. I was tweeting about this earlier today um, because somebody was bringing up Carl Durrell. He's not the worst coach in UCLA history. And I'm like, yes, that's true. And how horrifying is it that that's true? Like, think about that. How bad is it that Carl Durrell, no, he doesn't even make the, I don't know, bottom two, um, for, for UCLA. And I was remembering that, like, my first game as a student, as a 17 year old, wet behind the ears student, was UCLA beating Illinois six to three at home. And it was that, it was not a good Illinois team. It wasn't a good UCLA team. And it's just, I, I feel like that set a tone for the two decades of like ardent following of UCLA that I've been doing since then. Um, so I guess my point is I, I was, I, I, you know, it's sort of like Bane, you know, um, you've merely adopted the dark. 
uh, USC fan, Ryan, whatever. I was born in it, molded by it. Um, and I've been molded by shitty football. I don't know what I would do with the national championship UCLA, but I do know this. I can't sit there and defend shitty movies on Twitter. I think that would send me into a, a intellectual spiral. I wouldn't okay. be able to do it. Nice. All right. Uh, next up. Okay. In Kanto spoilers, this is from Paul Webfoot. Hello, champions. The brief discourse about uh, over in Kanto on the most recent episode made me squirm for a POC classic, forcing you two to assign something to each school, in this case, members of the family Madrigal. However, Ryan hasn't seen the film, and you can't count on Dave to put in this much work, so I decided I would do it for you. Instead of being creative, you just have to read what I wrote. May contain spoilers. Sorry to the listeners who couldn't begin to care about this, but we are in off-season POC mode. This was going to happen sooner or later, and you know it. I mean, it was signing day yesterday, so... <laughs> who cares about signing day? Uh, you didn't even mention that, by the way. You know, who cares? Who cares? It's fake signing day. It's not even real signing day anymore, and frankly... You've now been listening to eight of our recaps, listener. Nobody's recruiting well in the Pac-12 except for Arizona and USC. We'll talk about them later. Fuck USC. All right, <laughs> UW. Peppa. Her powers should make her extremely powerful, but she has trouble controlling it and thus rarely meets her potential. Is often rained on. Love it. Washington State. Mirabelle. Charming, but with no real powers. She really shouldn't matter much, but finds ways to make herself important no matter what else happens. Okay. Oregon State, Antonio, adored by the rest of the family, is unusually fun, can talk to beavers. You can't help but like the little guy. Oregon, the house, very powerful and gets lots of attention, but is not without cracks and fell apart at the end. Now rebuilt, it will hopefully be better than ever. Love it. Idaho, abuela, abuelo, was once part of the family, died a long time ago so that others could live. (laughs) Uh, Stanford, Felix, big guy with a few good lines, but has no powers and has limited relevancy. Not really sure why he's here at all. Cal is Dolores. She has powers but doesn't do much with them. Wouldn't be missed if she was removed from a future remake. Uh, UCLA is Isabella. Was once expected to lead the family but doesn't end up playing a major role. Loosely associated with roses. Uh, USC is Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno on this show. Is surprisingly powerful but hated by the rest of the family. Considered leaving the family but got too scared and stayed. Desperately wants to matter again. Arizona is Camilo. He can shapeshift, and Jed Fish seems to be turning his program into something else. ASU Abuela, angry all of the time with an inflated ego, will go to any length to keep up with her expectations for herself, which was her own undoing in the end. Colorado Augustine, Mirabelle's father, married into the family and is easy to forget he exists and is often quite misfortunate, could be replaced by a better character. Wow. Utah is Louisa. Big and strong, likable, and reliable. She is forced to carry many of the burdens for the family. She has the best song, too. Despite all of this, the focus ends up on Bruno in the end. Uh, Dave and fellow listeners with young children, how did I do? I think this is perfect. Ryan, you have to watch the movie just so that this makes sense to you, but this email is actively beautiful. Okay. Uh, I'll try to watch the movie. Is it a Disney Plus one? Yes. Okay. It's it's Uh, short. It's not too bad. All right. Uh, Nick... Nikos, we're gonna, he has a question for me. Congratulations on getting Caleb Williams. I, I didn't get anybody, but thank you. Uh, really. Shut up. From a true blue Bruin. Huge pickup, really. Here's the thing, though. I know over there in Suckville, you guys are euphoric and you are in a euphoric excitement right now. But do you, as a USC fan and alumni, ever worry about what is, what if Riley doesn't immediately turn it around? Uh, I'm not a USC fan, by the way. What if they have a rough first season? What if they spent 
too much energy on the offensive side of the ball, and the defense still can't stop anyone. Serious question. What does Riley have to do to make the fan base happy? What if he goes eight and four, nine and three, or ten and two every year like he did in Oklahoma? I guess he had a couple of years where he made the playoffs. Will the fan base be okay with the, uh, I know it's, I know this sounds like snark, and yeah, there's a, a lot layered in it, but short of a natty, is your fan base going to be okay with that, or is there a danger of over expectations? Uh, I think there's always probably inflated expectations at USC, but you know, go from four and, Eight to like eight and four and nine and three, and they're like scoring 50 points against terrible teams. I think people would be excited about that. You know, if Caleb Williams, he didn't throw, you know, I think he had four picks last year, but you know, if he had like eight picks, but like 30 touchdowns and, you know, ran for six more and had a lot of fun, like I think just having some fun football, people would be kind of happy. Um, but you know, he had two Heisman winners, uh, runner up. Playoff runs, you know, big bowl games. I think you get back to doing stuff like that. I think fans will be happy at first, but then they will eventually want them to take the next step and be in the playoff and stuff like that. So, I don't know. That's just my thought. I don't know if you have any, David. Yeah, I mean, I think the way – I think getting Caleb Wilson kind of does set you up for having real expectations immediately, even if there was maybe a mood in the fan base to be patient. But, no, you don't hire Lincoln Riley and you don't do this and get Caleb Williams and do all that. I mean, I think there's internal expectations to be very good pretty quickly, um, and there should be. They should be. I mean, the I, I don't know. When USC is run correctly, uh, there should be pretty damn near elite expectations every year, and looking at that roster for next year, yeah, there's a few position groups where you might have to squint a little bit, but with Caleb Williams and what they already return, I don't know, man. I think they can be pretty damn good. Yeah, that's from David Woods, everybody. He's really yeah. excited about this. The Death Star returns. Well, no, I'm back into the other mode, which is oh. now I set the expectations very high. Oh. And then when okay. they, yeah, you, 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 you're, so you used, when, you're so used to the Clay Helton era that I, I, I'm getting back in the mold. Oh, yeah. You know, remember when UCLA beat LSU and we were all just, you know, I'm like, you know what would be fun? <laughs> and it sort of came out. That was good. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not the long extension I wanted for Chip Kelly, but we got an extension, so that's uh, mission yeah. accomplished. Okay. Last last written review, and then we'll just deal with the voicemail some other time. Okay. All right, this is from Eric. Uh, in fairness to JJ, a five-star review. Hi, Ryan and Dave. I don't have a subscription to Apple Podcasts, but I debated getting one just to leave a five-star review. That is, until I remembered you let us send your emails, send you emails as well. Big mistake, guys. Anyway, here's my five-star review of your show, written after listening to the January 25th podcast. Ryan and Dave clearly understand Pac-12 football like nobody else. For example, they understand that it's far better to discuss how terrible the new Star Wars movies are than to spend the next the same two minutes discussing USC football. A-plus distraction tactics, David. Two thumbs up. And in true sports reporting fashion, they left out one crucial detail even in the Star Wars discussion. In The Last Jedi, there was perhaps the most egregious ignorance of distance when two characters went... In their own words, halfway across the galaxy, get arrested, break out of jail, and still make it back to the main area, all in the span of about 10 hours. What is this, a galaxy for ants? <laughs> anyway, since J.J. Abrams didn't direct that movie, clearly he can't be the one at fault for such a tiny galaxy far, far away. Zero out of ten, five stars. P.S. Love what you guys put together each week. Can't wait to listen for when you bring in the sports writers for OSU, Washington State, and UW. You can skip the Oregon guys, though. I already get too many articles about the uh, asterisk ux. When I try and look up news about my beads later, guys, Eric. Thanks, Eric. What I thought it. of, uh, David, the, uh, I forget which one. I think it was the one where Luke became like, he was a, um, uh, 
whatever, a vision and, and, um, they're trying to kill him and they're shooting all this stuff and he like dusts himself off. Like they, they went out like the, the fighters or whatever from that fortress or thing they were in were thought, you know, taking those speeders all the way out, all the way out. They, they all get like blown up. They're like miles away. And then they like kind of walk back. They're like, just get back to get back to base. You're like, it would have took you like a day to get back to base to where you're going. Like, uh, do you remember that part? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I don't probably didn't describe it very well, but. No, no, you did. Um, I think like that sort of level, cause like that even happens in, um, in Empire when they're doing Hoth. Like, uh. Oh, yeah. Doesn't yeah. he like crash his speeder and then he's gotta like run back in? Yes. He's like way out there, like. Yeah, and it's like, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna beat the invading army back, like just running, asshole? No. Yeah. Sorry. You're not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would say like, um, here's my, my honest take, Eric, is that, uh, J.J. Abrams, by bookending the thing with his stupid shit, uh, put the middle guy, Ryan Johnson, in kind of a bad spot that he had to figure out, um, with a lot of different stuff. And I think largely succeeded. Like, I think Last Jedi is a flawed movie, but there's some cool parts of it. Um, and like narratively, thematically, I think we're, like thematically, I would say is, is much, much, much better. And more interesting than either the first or the or the last. The last being, um, uh, what the fuck was it called? Uh, 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 Rise uh, of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. Jesus, what a <laughs> terrible turd. I mean, Force Awakens. I mean, at least he was just copying, like just blatantly copying uh, the best parts of the original trilogy. Um, and so you know you couldn't fall too hard. But the last one, like with like original plotting uh, or whatever was just an egregious piece of shit. And, uh, you know, he should be dealt reprisals for that. All right. And David would not take a UCLA national championship if he had to talk about that all over again. So, um, but let's wrap it up because we got, uh, we got stuff to do. You got some UCLA basketball to cover and all this kind of fun stuff. Uh, but that is David Woods. I am Ryan Abraham. Thanks so much for tuning in to the podcast of champions. Hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, next week we'll do the California schools and we will talk to you next time. Bye. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.